The real question is, who's not in the room, right? When we go into spaces, do we scan the room and then ask the question, who's not here? Who's not here that should be here because we don't have that representation? Oftentimes we walk into a room and we just look at who's there. And then we we go down the list, we check off, oh, Robert's here, Juliana's here, Mike is here, right? But starting to ask ourselves, who's not present? Who's not in the room? Um, thinking about from a company or organizational perspective, who are we leaving out? What constituency isn't at the table? What client base have we not thought about or reached out to? That is what real inclusion looks like. Welcome to the Voices of Inclusion podcast, the place where you'll hear strategic and tactical insights shared by diversity, equity, and inclusion experts. This podcast is brought to you by Matheson, the world's first DEI operating system. Comment, like, and subscribe on all platforms. Let's get back to the episode. All right. So Juliana Mosley, um, I know you as an incredible DEI leader and someone who has an amazing TEDx talk, um, but... For people that don't know you yet, um, could you let the listeners know a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, thank you, first of all, for the opportunity. Um, yes, Juliana Mosley Williams. It's a lot. Um, most people call me Dr. J, actually. It's kind of a little moniker. And um, I am a 25-plus-year educator. That sounds crazy to say that out loud. Um, having started my career as a high school teacher in Houston, Texas, and then being uh, working in higher education, um, for the last 22 years, um, I, I think it is. Yeah. So I'm currently, um, the inaugural special assistant to the president for diversity, equity, and inclusion at Salish university, which is a healthcare graduate school, um, in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Um, and I have been working in some form of DEI or student development, uh, for my entire career. Um, I'm very passionate about education and students are my love and my reason and my calling. And so that's a little bit about me. That's amazing. Um, I like the part about Philadelphia because I was born in Philadelphia. I like boys to men. (laughs) 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 me Right. Um, That's true. That's true. I love it. I am not originally from Philly. I'm a Cleveland girl, um, but I do love Philadelphia. uh, And so it has definitely uh, grown on me. Um, It's a place that uh, while they call it, let's see, um, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, um, y'all don't like outsiders. So uh, (laughs) you kind of got to know somebody who knows somebody who can vouch for you here. Um, but I, I guess I've uh, infiltrated the Philadelphia waters, if you will, over the last eight years. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about cultural literacy. Um, I mean, you are an expert in that field. Your TEDx talk, I think you said it had over 250,000 views. Um, almost at 250,000, yeah. That's, that's incredible. Um, and I think obviously a lot of people like it (laughs) and i know that you're a lifelong learner um and you even learned mandarin when you were just a kid so um why do you think you love learning so much i know we're going to get into a lot of different topics but um yeah why 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 do you consider consider yourself a lifelong learner um honestly for me it started as a child i think um i am a first generation college student 
And so neither one of my parents um, went to college. I think they had opportunity, but at the time that they were growing up, they had other options. Um, and so, but I think that they both realized that education would have taken them even further in life had they gone. And so in raising me, um, education was never an option. It was, you will, right? It was a requirement. Um, I mean, when the college conversation started coming up, it wasn't if you're going to college, it's where are you going to college? And um, so I've always loved school. I love to learn, um, to enlighten my mind. Um, I always thought it was the one thing that somebody could not take from me. Um, no matter what happened, that you can't take my knowledge. You can't take what's inside of my brain. And so I knew I wanted to be a teacher probably in the sixth grade. In the sixth grade, I knew I wanted to be a teacher and um, actually knew at that time I wanted to get my PhD. My father had given me a dictionary um, as a gift. I know that sounds really weird. I was a for real nerd, y'all. And uh, so he gave me a dictionary when I was in the sixth grade and I wrote in the inside cover that I would earn my PhD by the time I was 28 years old and that I would write math textbooks. And I also wrote that I would be famous. So I haven't written any math textbooks, um, but I wrote a dissertation and I have a chapter in a book and another one that's coming out this year. Um, but I earned my PhD at the age of 26 and, um, and I'm on my way to fame. So how about that? <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I just love learning and I couldn't imagine stopping. Because when you stop learning, in my opinion, you may as well stop living. Hmm. It seems like you're really interested in learning about other people, too. Um, so what does cultural literacy uh, mean to you? Um, so it is about learning about other, right? And so whoever mm -hmm. other is. Um, and the more that you learn, know, and experience of other people or of other cultures, in my opinion, the more enriched your own life experience is. Also, um, the more vast your perspectives and your views. You know, if I lived, if I had grown up in Cleveland and stayed there my entire life um, and never really left that city, I'm not gonna say that I would be um, stifled because Cleveland has a lot of diversity, so let me say that, but I know that my experiences that have allowed me to live in eight different states um, have increased um, my experiences, my perspectives, my views. And just like I've taken in from everyone else, I also hope that I'm also in a position to give, right? And that people being around me or talking to me or having the chance to interact with me um, and what I bring to the table hopefully also enriches their life. And so I strongly encourage people, you know, to have as many of those other experiences um, as possible. And you'd be surprised. I mean, even when someone is starkly different from you, um, particularly in terms of our ideology, um, there have been times I've met people and I did not agree, but at a minimum, it, caused me to question why I didn't. I always tell people as an educator, three things happen in terms of learning. When you meet someone or that has a different perspective than yourself, 
It either increases your belief in what you already know to be true or value, which is learning, or you shift completely based on that new information and you take on that other perspective, which is learning. Or there is a compromise of what you know, believe to be true and the new information. And maybe you take a little bit of that. In all three situations, learning still occurred. And so as long as we're open to it, you're going to learn no matter what. Um, and just imagine how much richer you are as an individual because of the experiences of others. You had a moment um, in your TED, TED, TED talk when you talked a little bit about uh, how you were able to call yourself in um, at one point and use it as a teachable moment. Um, why do you think other people have a tough time being called in or a tough time with moments like that? Because it makes you accountable, right? So in cultural humility, actually the last tenet of cultural humility talks about institutional accountability, but that but institutional accountability begins with self, right? It's not just on our, our institutions and our structures. And when you're called in, you know, we talk about calling people out versus calling people in. But when you're called in, um, it is different because while you're not on the defensive, it still means that you have to be accountable. Um, and you, that means that you have to be accountable for your thoughts, your actions, your words, and your deeds. Um, and it can be a place that is not comfortable. And, you know, one of the new phrases that we have is, you know, get comfortable um, with being uncomfortable. And, um, you know, it's a cliche phrase, phrase, if you will, today, but it's so true. Like, we can't walk around here just always feeling like, oh, everything is good with me and everybody agrees with me and, oh, my perspectives are shown and, oh, I can always see myself. No, what happens when we can't? What happens when there is no representation that looks like us or when there are no thoughts um, that mimic ours? What do you do with that? How do you then stretch yourself um, to maybe be open to something else? Um, how do you then maybe push the envelope to make sure that your perspective is heard um, and why? And so that calling in um, definitely brings with it a lot of um, discomfort um, but it's always an opportunity um, to be postured, to learn, which in my opinion, always leads to better. It's amazing. Um, and I realized that I said cultural literacy earlier. I meant to say cultural humility. <laughs> it's okay. I knew what you were talking about and kind of in some ways, cultural literacy is a real thing. I mean, it's actually a real thing as well. So it's all right. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, throughout your career, I know you've had, um, a chance to really train leaders from different industries. Um, how do you help them create a sense of belonging when it comes to uh, the training process? Yeah. So um, when operating from, again, a cultural humility framework, um, what we're trying to do is to get people to tap into themselves, right? So that lifelong learning piece um, is about self-critique, self-evaluation, and so it's understanding and knowing thyself, right? So it's thinking about your identities and how either you were born with them or they've been shaped and nurtured, you know, as you have um, been socialized. And because we're asking people to kind of talk about or think about themselves, then when you go into a training situation, a lot of that identity work and that focus 
on also thinking about power dynamics so that people can understand that power exists with every form of creation. Um, and that when you do these things from a conscious state of mind, that then your culture will start to be transformed and shift. When that happens, then belonging, which is a feeling, should in fact be your outcome, right? So I can't go in and train people on how um, to belong. That's impossible. But if I can train you about how to think about the cultural environment that you provide and how people connect um, and how an institution or a company can think about its values that it espouses and what that looks like in terms of um, how the company operates. If we can do those things, then the outcome should be that you create an environment where people feel like they belong. And belonging is a, a sense of, I wanna matter, right? The Black Lives Matter movement in many ways um, put the word matter on a billboard. Because before that, were we really talking about things matter? Like you didn't hear that word being used a lot. But when that movement came out, it empowered the word in a way that people are like, yeah, I, I wanna matter. Um, I don't wanna just exist and people don't see me, people don't hear me. And um, so that mattering is huge. And it's, I mean, again, everything known to creation wants to matter. If you have a dog, the dog wants to know that it matters when you walk in the house every day. Um, it wants to know that there's, oh, you see me, you see me being hype about you, like you see me, right? And so who wants to live their life in a way that they're non-existent or that people don't see them and they feel non-existent? And so companies, organizations, and institutions, in my opinion, have a task at hand, which is to make sure that their environments um, are welcoming enough, um, inclusive enough, sensitive enough, that the people who work there or the people that they serve feel like they belong and that they actually matter. What do you think about the difference between um, belonging and psychological safety? I feel like they're connected Ooh, in some way. They are. So um, maybe your listeners will remember, right? Psychology 101, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Remember the triangle. And so at the bottom of the triangle, of course, is um, kind of our physical needs, like food, shelter, things of that nature. But that next um, layer um, starts to talk about, you know, what matters to us and, and that piece about belonging. So it is essential if you think about the layers of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs um, to our well-being as humans. Um, and so we desire that. Um, I mean, you could even look at um, sociology in terms of babies and their development. If babies are not um, nurtured, cared for, hugged, talked to, they will experience developmental delays, meaning their speech will be delayed. They will not crawl, walk, scoot, things of that nature. All of that can be delayed just because 
no one is caring for them. No one is reaching out and making them feel like even in their existence and infancy that they belong. And so if it can stifle development of a baby, then imagine what it does to us as adults, right? And so if you are in an environment where no one is tapping into you, people don't care, they don't see you. Um, every decision that's made is made in absence of you. How can you develop as a contributing member to that organization? You can't, right? And that's why people leave jobs. The great resignation that we're experiencing in this country, it's not just about, oh, COVID happened and we don't want to work anymore. COVID happened, people went home because we were forced to. In being forced to be at home, people were doing a whole lot of cultural humility and they didn't know it because they were they were forced to have to self-reflect, self-evaluate what's important because all of a sudden you were at home and you weren't being tied down by the external forces of the world. And people then started to realize what's important. What do I really value? Where's my time spent? Wow, I'm seeing my spouse more or my partner more than I ever have because normally I am inundated by my job and all of the other social things that we start to say yes to. Um, and people started to think about life being different. And so now they're tapping in and they're looking at the companies or the places that they work for and saying, wait a minute, you don't make me feel like I belong. You don't make me feel connected. You want me to do all these things, da 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 da, da. And so the great resignation, a lot of it has to do with I need to find a place where not only do I matter, but that it's going to matter to me and what it is I'm trying to do in my life. And so I hope that companies, organizations, and institutions are listening because we're going to continue to lose people if we don't make cultural shifts and changes that provide that environment for people to belong and matter. We'll just keep losing folks. And then we know turnover is not good for any organization. Too much turnover, you can't be productive. Not in the same way. So true. Um, and yeah, I think I know a lot of really talented people that um, are amazing one-on-one. -on -one, but sometimes if they get in a room with certain people, they kind of shrink or they don't want to speak up or they don't want to say anything. And it's usually because, I think it's because they're not psychologically safe. Um, but it's interesting it's interesting. I think it's, it's definitely, I think it, it seems like something that's teachable, but um, when you think about a person like that, the one that I did just described, um, how should a leader interact or engage with that person just to make them um, engage with the groups a little bit more? Yeah, in education specifically, we talk about brave spaces, but also safe spaces. And um, Brave spaces means that like in a, an environment or a space, um, I feel like it's okay for me to speak up, right? So I, I, I'm encouraged to speak up, to use my voice to be present. In safe spaces, um, the environment or the culture is welcoming enough that it will happen. Right. So it's not just for me, myself, but the environment that's been created 
then welcomes me in and becomes a place that I feel like it is okay for me to have that voice um, and to be able to speak up. One where I can be my authentic self, um, fully present myself, and that it will be accepted and even appreciated. Right. And so I think that when we are in environments where um, people are present and if we see or notice, first of all, we got to be sensitive to it. But if we see and notice that folks are not speaking up, they're present, but they're not engaging, um, then that's where that power dynamic that we were talking about earlier, shifting and mitigating the power imbalances under cultural humility then it's up to others. And it doesn't have to be the leader per se, the person with the position of authority. It can be simply another colleague who just says, you know, and maybe it's in that moment, you know, you know what, we haven't heard from Robert. Robert, do you have anything to offer today, whatever? Or maybe if they don't want to call them out, right? In that space after the meeting, I'm gonna call you in and say, Hey, Robert, I notice every time we go to the staff meetings that, you know, you don't really speak up, but I know you have great ideas because I've been in one-on-one -on -one meetings with you and I really think that you have some things to share. I just want to encourage you that the next time we go in, you know, to say something and, and you know, I've got your back, right? Um, and imagine how much further that will go, right? Robert's going to feel more comfortable um, coming into that next meeting, at least knowing I've got one person on my team. Um, who's going to be there for me, right? Um, and the other thing I'll say is that we just talked about someone who may be in that space. The real question is, who's not in the room, right? When we go into spaces, do we scan the room and then ask the, the question, who's not here? Who's not here that should be here because we don't have that representation? Oftentimes we walk into a room and we just look at who's there. And then we we go down the list, we check off, oh, Robert's here, Juliana's here, Mike is here, right? But starting to ask ourselves, who's not present? Who's not in the room? Um, thinking about from a company or organizational perspective, who are we leaving out? What constituency isn't at the table? What client base have we not thought about or reached out to? That is what real inclusion looks like. Right, um, it's to consider who's not there and bring them in um, with intentionality. Yeah, and I've I've seen some people, um, let's say for instance, they'll they'll get invited into the room and they they not you know I guess nothing really happens or they don't really speak up or something like that um, because they're not comfortable or they might say, hey, I'm okay, you don't have to invite me, and I I think later on they might have a change of heart so i feel like sometimes leaders just have to keep going instead of leaving in person after they've kind of declined that invitation um but you know uh how do you think training is different in healthcare than in other industries okay yeah um i think so training in healthcare yeah is definitely different and here's here's the biggest one i've noticed is um in healthcare, um, in particular, people are already kind of told or positioned to be seen as experts. Okay, so um, so there's already this um, consciousness 
about how much they know and that they have knowledge that common people do not, right? And also that this knowledge is um, developed in a way that helps them to care for or treat um, other folks. So coming into that environment sometimes can already be a challenge because these folks have been told that they're experts. And so now somebody else is gonna come in and tell them, well, yes, you know medicine, you know healthcare, you know all these things, but now I wanna show you or teach you how to really connect with and see your patients or clients more holistically. That's a shift in mindset because they're there to treat a condition or a disorder or an emergency situation. Um, I'm not going to say that all healthcare providers um, follow that philosophy. Don't don't get me wrong, because there are some that do consider the whole person, but also the challenges of healthcare, right? So you've got to see so many people in a certain time frame. You've got to move from one thing to the next. Da, da, da. They may not. We we almost have a system that not has not, in my opinion, really allowed people um, or allow our healthcare professionals and practitioners to be as inclusive of the whole person um, dynamic, right? Um, and so that is, um, that brings with it its own set of challenges in terms of trying to, to do that training. At the same time, I think that if folks are open to it, it has been one of the most rewarding um, disciplines and environments where I have done training because um, it really does seek to care for the whole person. And so when I have had either my students or even um, the faculty who are also normally healthcare practitioners, um, you know, who are open, then it's like, oh, this is amazing, right? Because now we're going to care for the whole person. We're going to look at you know, the issue at hand, but then we're going to think about why this person may even have this issue, what other things in their life could have led to this, or the fact that they're seeing me now and they should have seen me six months ago. But now I'm going to think about where were they six months ago? What was going on in their life? Did they not have access to healthcare? Did they not have the financial means um, to be able to get here? Were there problems with their children that were preventing them? I'm going to think about that and then say, okay, but now you're here. So not only are we gonna help you with your issue, but perhaps I can be of help to you regarding other resources or services that you might need. Does that mean that you spend a little bit more time with that patient or client? Yes. Does it mean that you now have to go and get a new set of knowledge or skills to be able to even make those offers? Yes. Um, but what's the overall uh, win? That patient or client now trusts you in a different way, they will be back, right? Um, because when we don't treat people well or we dismiss them or we're not concerned about all of who they are, they may make decisions to go elsewhere or worse yet, decisions to never come back. The distrust of the healthcare system within certain populations, that being Black, Brown, Native communities, people in rural communities from lower SES backgrounds, that is real. We cannot ignore that. 
Um, and so we have to reach out in a different way, again, to call those folks in, but then to have the resources available to help them continue with the process. Yeah, and I know you've worked within um, higher education um, institutions as well. So how do you feel like your training programs that are for the professionals inside the schools, um, how do you feel like those programs impact the students? Um, so I, I think in, in higher education um, in particular, we are normally um, more open, I think, to um, trying to better what we do as educators and, um, you know, to prepare students. And so I have, a, I have noticed that um, in those environments, people are much more receptive. How it benefits the students, wow, is of course, um, there is more focus on them individually um, as people, not just kind of in the collective, oh, I have a whole class and I just want to get here, um, but it, it it allows them to be more um, individualistic, I think, in terms of our approach. And then hopefully, you know, as we're training our, or teaching our students, then that means that they're going to be these more open, inclusive, equitable people who go out into society, right? So education is, you know, some people say it's a game changer. No, it's in game, right? We were talking about Marvel earlier. It's in game. This is it. When we put ourselves and position ourselves to give everything possible to our students, um, even if they don't get it in that moment, I have learned over time, we are planting seeds. And as long as they keep living, water and sunshine will hit them and they will grow. And we have a chance to really change our society. Are we where we should be? No. But have we come a mighty long way? Yes. Um, we are not the same United States of America that we were 60 years ago. We're not. Um, and even though we had a whole lot of challenges over the last few years, I do think that we are in a better place because even with those challenges, because of technology and the ability to see things in real time, it caused us to have different conversations. It's caused us to look at our policies, laws, um, operations, practices, way of doing and being. Um, we have not fixed them all, but there have been some things that have actually changed and happened over this last three to four years when we've had a lot of racial and uh, social um, injustices that have occurred. And so we can't um, get so bogged down in who we still are not. We have to give ourselves credit for who we have become and then just stay on the path, if you will, using Michelle Obama's, who we continue to become, right? Um, and so that we are constantly in the state of becoming, we are constantly in the state of evolving, changing, and hopefully being a better society. Wow, so many gems in this conversation, <laughs> Juliana. Um, well, I know we're uh, almost at time, but, um, people wanted to reach out to you, uh, how should they go about doing that? 
Oh, that's cool. Um, LinkedIn is really easy. That's how Robert found me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I do use LinkedIn a lot. Um, and so that's probably one of the easiest ways um, to reach out to me. And um, my email address, I actually don't mind giving my email publicly, um, but it's dr, like doctor, and then jmma at gmail.com. And so um, people can reach me that way. But um, yeah, I'd love to have more conversations and um, pique people's interest and, and even for me, continue to learn. Every time I have an interaction with someone, um, I challenge myself to grow from that experience um, and to be hopefully a little bit better, a little bit more informed um, and a little bit more open. And so um, I don't want anyone to feel like if they reach out to me that it is a one-way street. Uh, for me, it is definitely um, a two-way street and I love to have the, the opportunity. That's awesome. Um, so as the last question, uh, what actions do you think listeners should take after listening to your episode? Oh, wow. So I would have to say to try to employ um, at least one of the tenets of cultural humility, right? Um, and if the first one is just self-critique and self-evaluation, think about who you are. Um, literally think about your identities. You know, who are you in terms of your race, your ethnicity, your gender, sexual orientation, religion, political affiliation? Who are you in terms of being perhaps a, a parent or choosing not to be a parent or if you're a spouse or what you do for a living um, and consider those things, actually write them down, to be honest, you know, there's a power in writing. And then think about the experiences you've had as a result of those identities and how they've shaped you. Then think about how those experiences cause you to see and view the world. Through what lens are you are you looking? Through what lens are you having engagement with others? When you can do that and be pretty self-sufficient there, then you can make what I call an intellectual assumption that just like you have experiences that have led to how you see and view the world, that everyone else you meet has their experiences that lends to how they view and see the world. It might mean that those views on particular issues are not going to be the same. It doesn't make one's view or the other's right or wrong. It simply makes them different. And that when we can kind of understand that, it's a little bit easier then to be accepting of that difference than it is to be so quickly to say, I'm right and you're wrong. Because when we do that, it typically comes from a place of fear. And we don't need to let, in my opinion, fear be our driver for how we interact with each other. Um, instead, be motivated by what we can learn, how we can develop and how we can grow um, from each other, even if it is starkly different. Dr. Juliana 
Mosley Williams. <laughs> we couldn't have ended this better than that. Thank you so much for joining us for the Voices of Inclusion podcast. This was awesome. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I wish everyone well today. Did you like this? Subscribe to the Voices of Inclusion podcast to hear secrets from incredible DEI professionals. Don't forget to go to matheson.io to connect with us so we can help you develop your DEI strategy no matter where you are on your journey. We'll catch you in the next episode.